0: Welcome to Lucky Number, Episode 13 of the Camerosity Podcast, the first ever open source film photography podcast. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and with me tonight from Gainesville, Florida, is Mr. Anthony Rue. How are you doing on this fine evening, Anthony? I'm,
1: I'm doing well, though. I, I have to admit that I feel like a, I've got a bit of imposter syndrome tonight, and that with all the cameras that I have, I own four Nikons. I own the original FM2 that I bought when I was 19 years old, and it was the first camera I bought. I've got a second FM2 because I liked it so much I wanted to make sure I always add one. And then I've got two Nikon Fs.
0: And returning once again from Yellow Springs, Ohio, Mr. Paul Reibel. Hello there, Paul. Hey, how are you doing? And exactly like last week, with absolutely no difference, all the way from Sydney, Australia, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. How are you feeling today, Theo? I'm feeling great, thanks, Mike. I've finished my Vegemite sandwich. Very excited to record the show, (laughs) though. This week, we are recording an hour early as we have a special guest to talk with us about his books on the history of Nikon, the Zeiss Icon 10X2 Rangefinder, and whatever else he has been playing with recently. Michael Westcott Loader is here from his home in rural Pennsylvania and is the author of one of the best books I've read on the history of Nippon Kugaku and the Nikon Rangefinder. The Nikon Camera in America, 1946 to 1953, is available at Amazon and other bookstores and is a book that I definitely recommend, even for those who don't specifically collect Nikon cameras. How are you doing tonight, Wes? I'm doing great. Yeah, welcome to the show. Um, you know, w- let's just get started because we have some people in the waiting room to, to talk to us and ask us questions. But um, before we do that, though, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started?
2: Um, I got involved in photography seriously as when I took training as a photographic services officer in the United States Air Force. Uh, went to school for six months, and then I worked as a photo officer for three and a half years. Uh, and then I then went on to get a uh, spend a year at the Rochester Institute of Technology in photography, and then I got a master's in photojournalism at the University of Oregon. And during that, I got involved with Nikon rangefinders because I was doing a lot of caving in Texas. Uh, when I was in the Air Force, and I wanted a smaller camera, so I picked up a Nikon uh, S2 uh, because it fit into an ammo can a little bit better, and then I got interested in the history of the Nikon, read all the sources. I spent a lot of time doing research in the University of Oregon Library and University of Texas Library, going over old magazines and reports and stuff like that, and when I got finally wealthy enough to think about this business again in the early O's, and I, there was stuff posted on the web at that time that I was reading about the history and what have you that I knew was simply not true based on my earlier research. And uh, so I started doing new research and I discovered several things. Uh, of course, I was joined the Nikon Historical Society, got in touch with Bob Rodolini and, and other things like that. But I discovered that the two major players in the early importation of the Nikon camera, Hans Liholm and and uh, Adolf Gasser were still alive and uh, they're eager and happy to talk to me. I spent a lot of hours on the phone with uh, Adolf Gasser. I also visited Hans Lee home in Florida. Uh, and He shared a lot of information and materials with me. And I have cameras from both these gentlemen, the early Nikons. Then I went out and discovered, I looked up what was in national, the national records from the occupation of Japan and discovered that, oh, yes, the archives from the occupation of Japan have been de, no, uh, declassified and they've been indexed and the index is online. So I went online and started looking for things. One of the things they discovered is that you don't find anything mm-hmm. on Nippon Kagu or Nikon, but you can find lots of stuff on Japan Optical. And I amassed you know, uh hundreds of sources, which are all in the bibliography of the book, went down to the National Archives. I literally spent three or four days there and made several trips that lasted several days, staying with my daughter, lives near there. And uh you go in there and you and you, you know, you get a, a research permit and you spend your day pulling stuff out there and looking through it and photocopying stuff and making notes and photographing things. And you'd generally go nuts because you, can, you never have enough time. Uh, and we, that was the basis of the information uh, that became for what the, the, the contact with these two gentlemen and the archive stuff. And then other materials I located that became the basis of the Nikon book uh i later got interested in 10x because it's such a different camera i mean one of the things you know, you know I, I knew i could never get everything that was ever made for the Nikon either any of the reflexes or the or the rangefinder i just have a selection of stuff but i thought it was possible that i could buy everything that was ever made for a 10x too <laughs> and i actually pretty much succeeded there's only a two or three things that are so esoteric no i found it but um, i did the research on that. I, I got 10Xs and loved the camera and uh, ended up I ended up writing a book on the 10X2 uh, that has been a totally different type of approach. It's the only thing they share with is that they're interchangeable lens, 35 millimeter. But other than that, they're totally different. Uh, I've since started, I've also collected since then, I have a collection of Ambi Solette from AGFA uh, and um, and also a collection of uh, Acquerel Acquaret uh, cameras from germany as well and uh and will there be books on those two coming someday you know i i can't seem to get enough information on the Agfa SLED. i have never been able to figure out who designed the camera uh and, and things like that the information i would like to know about the people involved with the camera and why they came out when they did and i can pretty much figure out why it just continued but you know there's all sorts of questions that i've never been able to nail down information on now, the Accurade Accurale, a number of people have written extensively about that camera system um, and which was actually quite innovative. Uh, and it was a real systems camera. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's I don't know if I write something or not. Uh, the Watermat is what I just started into, and that's much more compact. But again, there's a lot of information, most of it in German, of course. Uh, so uh, we'll have to see. I. One of the things that I might mention is that I have a number of blogs out there. Uh, There's one, uh, if you just look up under West Loader, you can find my blog. And there's articles, almost all this stuff that I've done research on. Uh, And uh, I mean, it's not like yours. It's not indexed like yours, Mike, but uh, you can find it out there. And of course, I'm on Facebook as well.
0: So it will include links to your blog and links to your books uh, in the show notes too. So people can find it if they like.
2: You no, know, because there's stuff that, that there's pages I put up when I was still working for Penn state that are actually Penn state pages. And then there's my, my current blog plus the Facebook. So.
0: Excellent. All
1: last right, last well, of, thank- if, if I can hijack just for a second as a fellow spelunker, what was it like shooting an S two of those caves uh in, in texas what were you using for a flash how are you how are you taking those shots uh,
2: yeah, well you yeah, what you do a very simple i picked up a 35 millimeter f2.5 and that was the lens i use and i would throw that in an ammo can along with a whole bunch of flash bulbs usually m3 3 B's, and a high well my tildemite or two and you go in a cave, and you set your camera up on a tripod, and you put it on B and then you walked around and fired the flash or whatever you wanted to live it. <laughs> Just painted the cave. In the cave, yeah. And, and uh, I, you know, it's so. It's, it's, I mean, you, you, you get big rooms, little ones. Rooms. Uh, I actually had a, one of my pictures I took in a cave published in the last year out of Austin from the Airman's Cave, which I helped explore and map. But, uh, yeah, I did a lot of photography in caves back then. My wife and I were both uh, – well, I don't know if the spelunketer is not a respectable term anymore. <laughs> well, this,
1: th- this cave, in my background, people can't see, is actually the cave in Iceland that inspired Jules Verne to write The Journey to the Center of the Earth. Okay, there you go. And uh, I spent a decade doing underwater cave diving photography.
2: That's dangerous.
1: So I did, I did all of mine, you know, on – trimix,
2: you use, know, Using a you know.
1: Us. I was using mostly, I mean, this is all, you know, there's a point when you're doing like deep exploration diving that you don't really want to use film anymore, because if you're going to take the time to do like a seven hour dive uh, you, you have to go to digital. Uh, so uh, we, I worked with the company that manufactured underwater lighting. Uh, and so th- there was a combination of housings that we designed or we would trade, uh, lighting design with uh, people like Subal and Light and Motion to get housings for cameras like the the D100, yeah. and so the D100 is actually my my sort of stock and trade for about ten years.
2: Yeah, well, one of the things that went right when I was getting out of the Air Force, I picked up an ECONOS, figuring that would be a perfect cave camera, and I never went caving again except once, and I eventually sold it because I you know it it I just I did found I didn't like it.
1: <laughs> well, so- I actually I you know I actually have some friends that were. This fantastic industry underwater photographers. And uh, as they all got out of their 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 shooting of film, they all donated their Nikonoses to me. So I've been really enjoying taking them back in this in the springs. And I've just been not not even doing like, you know, tank dives, just like swimming around in the in the springs, taking pictures of manatees. Uh, you know, the threes are just a funky, fun little camera to shoot. No. And and then the five is just like one of the best cameras
0: that Nikon ever made.
3: And I've just ordered a four from Paul, so that's on the way from the US to <laughs> Australia right
0: now. <laughs> gas gas produces gas. Yeah. I have I have the Nikonos A two, and uh, I have the I think it was the stock thirty five millimeter, the f two five, and uh, I believe it was Robert who told me that optically that's the same as the rangefinder thirty five millimeter, and it's it's corrected. For both above water and below water, so if even if you're not an underwater person like me, they're still worthwhile to pick up and shoot above ground. Uh, although they do have some strange ergonomics, though they are
2: weird cameras. Well, the problem I had, had, had with it is that the little things inside of the lens that one sets the aperture and one sets the uh, uh, the, the distance, the screw, the set screw that hold the knobs in place, kept cutting loose. Oof. And no matter what I did, I couldn't keep it the taste tight. And that was a major nuisance. And I guess, I you know, once I got away from caving, I, even in bad weather, I wasn't shooting it. You know, I was using my my Nikon Fs and, and, and SPs. Yeah. And you and that's what I was doing. One of my things why I'm I'm been moving more and more towards like the, the most to the Ackerel and the uh, the Lorna Mat is I keep looking for a smaller, lighter. Uh, more compact camera to work with yeah and uh that's certainly not true of uh, um, of the of the, of the reflex cameras and uh, i mean yeah, the Nikon f in its time was a pretty compact camera, but when you compare it to the later one i use i shoot all my reflex stuff with a, i have a nikon f m and i think i shoot almost all my reflex stuff with an f m um
3: you can see the comparison. I've um, Obviously, the listeners can't see that, but I've actually got about three shelves, Nikons, just behind me here, and they go from the f through to the F5, and then all the nickel mats and all the FMs and all the digital ones there. And you can actually see how it was actually you're spot on. It was quite a compact camera. The F3 probably got a bit smaller, and then they just went big. Yeah, they bloomed up, and that's where
0: I lost interest. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to answer.
0: Thanks for that background, Wes. What a great way to start the show. It looks like we have several people in the waiting room eager to join in on the discussion. I am going to let them all in at once and we'll see what happens. Looks like we have some returning guests, Mark Faulkner, Nick Lyle, and our special guest from Episode 8, Mr. Robert Shanebrook. Welcome back, everyone. We also have a new face. Miles Lieback is joining us as well wait a minute. Now this is special. His spidey senses must have been tingling. Joining in on the Nikon history discussion is Mr. Robert Rodoloni himself. Wow, what a great selection of guests. Before we jump in too deep, though, we have a question from our Facebook page that asks, why was Nikon so successful in those earlier years? Why didn't Canon or Pentax have the same level of success right away?
2: I don't think that a lot of people realize is that Nippon Kogaku was first and foremost an optical company. Uh, in 1948, there were only four companies in Japan that actually melted and made optical glass, and Canon and Pentax were not. The, they were not there. It was uh, Minolta, Can- Tokyo Kogaku,
3: and Fuji. Were, were Canon was actually using Nikon glass, wasn't it at that point? Yeah, oh yeah,
2: yeah. They were basically what these companies were doing the ones that were making their own lenses, like the Serenars. They were buying optical glass either as blanks or discs or something like that. And they're then grinding them and mounting them as their own lenses, but they weren't actually making their own glass back then. The other thing is that was different is that Nippon kaga was a full-fledged company, which it still is today. And uh, for instance, I happen to bring out here. This is a lovely little thing, heavy as a dickens. It's a tilting level, uh, absolutely essential uh, for, determining levels when you're building buildings or roads and everything like that, uh, extremely high quality. It's actually much better quality than their camera was in the same period. Uh, nobody else was making things like that other than other than Tokyo, Stock, which was also a full-fledged optical company. Uh, and there was a major demand for that because Japan, of course, was in ruins, so they had to rebuild everything. So those are some things I wanted to, to bring up here. Anybody other, any other questions about any of this sort of stuff? or we can, I can talk all night here, but I can also give you guys a chance to throw your questions in, or if you want to talk about something like the 10X or something like that.
3: The 10X is actually quite an interesting camera. I mean, the, the whole idea of 4x4 – uh, sorry, a square. I should say not 4x4, four four, but um, a square format, 35mm camera, always intrigued me, the why and, and, and the kind of market that we're aiming at.
2: Well – I you know, I don't know what the mind of uh, Hubert Irwin was, but there was there's a couple of things that were going on there. One thing, uh, Zeiss Icon owned or had controlling interest of Compoor and, and later uh, Prontor, the, uh, uh the uh the uh the Deckel company that made the Compour shutters. And they had entered into a deal with with, with Zeiss Econ that that Zeiss would use Compoor shutters in their cameras. And they were looking at it and saying, wait a second, you have all these 35-millimeter cameras coming out. They don't have copper shutters in them. They all have the, the vertical uh, window shade or roller desk type shutters that was in the contacts and then and, and the uh, Net, uh, NetX or whatever. You've got to make us a copper shutter camera because that's part of the deal. They didn't want to produce just... A regular run of the mill camera and the problem was they didn't have a compur shutter there that would allow coverage of a 24 by 36 format not not back then within the limitations of optical design so that was one of the reasons that they went with the 24 by 24 because they could create a camera that would actually not vignette with a range of lenses right right so that was the big part of it. The other thing was, of course, and this is the thing the robot was going at, is that you could get, you, you're trying to go for fast action, and this camera shoots very fast. And that was part of it. They wanted a fast action camera, which the contacts and the like are not fast action cameras. I don't care how you do it. You're going to spend, you know, wine, 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 trying to get to the next shot. Just yeah. for the people listening,
3: what, what you just showed then was the, the actual wine mechanism seems to be. Um, some sort of on the front. lever that you pull down at the front right. of the camera.
2: Right. That was the. Which model is that? that, Wes? What? Which model is that? This is the. This is the 10x2. Okay. Yeah. I had a 10x1. Okay. A little bit more primitive. Same. Yeah. Same action. Behind the lens, leaf shutter with a with a lever advance although the lever actions on the other side. Yeah, the ten X one is actually a very fast shooter because you can advance and shoot using both hands. It's on the it's, you do you advance with your left index finger. Yeah, and fire with wow. well, this one it's both in the same side. You can actually shoot everything with your right hand. I mean, it's it's almost right. like reverse of a reverse of an Um uh, so was the, was
1: the 10X a response to the robot, or was the robot a response to the 10X?
2: The robot was first, but uh, Nerwin always maintained that he was not influenced by the robot. The only thing that two have in common is they're both fast-action cameras, and they're both 24 by 24 square. They also have the same optical limitations in that if you get beyond 75 millimeter, it'll vignette. So that's, you know, the problem there. And they were actually competing against each other for military contracts in the Second World War. The robot won. But uh, the the optics here, I mean, it's it's got a 40 millimeter uh, F2 sonar on it, which is just a beautiful lens. A really, really sharp, very nice lens. I love the thing. Uh, I have also got the 27 millimeter and the 75 millimeter, which are the other two optics they made. Uh, but... Um,
0: What's cool about the 10x too is you know it being a re- uh, interchangeable lens uh, camera. When you swap out the lenses, you're also swapping out part of the viewfinder, right?
2: Right, right. The well, it's typical of, of the of the Zeiss thing is where the there's a window attached to the lens that when you swap out the lenses, that comes out with it. Okay and that actually controls the rangefinder there's no moving optics with the rangefinder in the camera at all this is a very this is a life size. it's one of the first cameras that I've ever had a life-size viewfinder yeah it's got a a, a two-inch difference this is in a highly accurate rangefinder i mean just really incredible much better than uh than in than a contact say even with its long base yeah. uh, or better than probably even a Leica or a nikon because it's such a long base and because of the rotating prisms in the window here you get a lot more movement yeah. so more accurate uh the other thing is that the, the your shutter speeds are marked on the lenses you take the lens off uh you don't you can't tell what your shutter speeds are because they're marked on the lenses uh
4: That's but it was
2: you know, other than you can't, that, help
4: but, you can't help but wonder why they didn't use that large viewfinder on the contacts
2: well you know yeah, i do you do wonder why that what was it going on but they were you know they had uh you know, they were doing two different
4: that. sets of engineers that weren't talking to each other.
2: Well, that too. I mean, Nerwin, uh Nerwin actually designed what would have been a Contax Four before the Second World War, and it had the same type of focusing mechanism. Went to the it only used the external mount and had the same type of focusing the movement and moved the meter down inside the camera, so you didn't have this big hump on top. I mean, it was a much more sophisticated, more. Yeah camera and of course oh, everything like that was destroyed when they destroyed the factory and the, the fireball I,
0: I have all of the zeiss historica newsletters uh larry Gubas gave them to me before he passed away and i don't remember offhand which one it is but in one of those back issues they had a short article about the contacts for uh and th- there's a couple um mark, mock-ups of it
2: right mock-ups they had some mock-ups of it right it's in his book too
4: yeah yeah, and you wonder why Stuttgart didn't pick some of that up after the war when they made the two A and the three A. Well, you know that, uh,
2: Bob. I think that's a very good question. I think what the my take on it is is that the uh, what, what became West Germany's Zeiss Econ was so strapped for cash then. That and I think a lot of the brains had left too. I mean, when the when the when the things were split up, I mean and Norwin was getting ready to go to the United States. Uh he didn't really, I don't think he cared that much anymore. Uh and he was the real brain designer brains. Uh, they I think that they basically sort of said, let's be careful, let's not do anything. let's not rock the boat, let's not do anything. That'll really queer with what we did before, and uh, I think that uh, Koppenheimer, who was the head by that time, he was the head of his I.C. Con. He was determined to keep that shit same uh, shutter because he owned the patent for it, and therefore he was making money off it. Um, uh, there was a lot of politics of, of that going on there, and of course once they started making the Coniflex. Single lens reflex, and they made money on that. They didn't care about the contacts anymore.
0: Now, I know uh, Hubert Nerwin, after he left Zeiss, um, he went to uh, America and he worked for Graflex, right?
2: He worked for Graflex. He designed the uh, military camera, a great big monster that looked like a contacts, except it was this big. Uh, and Used 70 millimeter roll film. Uh, And then he designed the Instamatic. Instamatic
5: that I actually knew Herbert Nerwin, but I, I didn't know he did all these things. Yeah, he, he was. When he, you said his name before, I was like, I was listening carefully. Could that be the same Herbert Nerwin? Yeah. He, yeah, yeah. he, he died some time ago. Yeah, he
2: died, I think, in the late 1980s. Uh, ladies, uh, I don't have to look it up. I just have to look in the book.
5: And then, yeah, he worked on several things, including the Instamatic.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, that was his idea. And, of course, Kodak made billions off of the Instamatic. Uh, let see. He died in 1980,
4: 1982. Yeah. Wes? Yeah. Um, the fact that the context 2A and 3A weren't really that much different from the pre-war type, And then East Germany was putting out the the contacts reflexes. Could it be that some of the better engineers didn't get out in time and they were stuck on the East? Uh, Well, who knows? Because
2: it was, uh, you know, I mean, Zeiss Econ was in Dresden, of course. Right. They really, uh, the the Russians really took over the Works, which was, of course, the op which was Carl Zeiss, not Zeiss Econ. But uh, yeah, a a lot of the brains got left behind there. There's no doubt about it. Um, And, uh, but I think that and this is why I've gotten sort of interested in the jammer, the German camera industry, is that because there was so many missed opportunities there that they could have done things, and they ended up so sucked into Compur shutters and Prontor shutters for everything uh, that uh, they couldn't, I mean, I, like, I don't know if they only, the West Germans made exactly one single-inch reflex with a focal plane shutter, the Adixa. That's it. You know, and a lot of it was patent restrictions. Leica had patented the the focal plane shutter to the eyeballs, and they weren't about to share that with anybody. And uh, while it's the Japanese, of course, they didn't care. I mean, the Japanese had no control, so they could do anything they wanted, and they were, of course, producing lots of ja- like copies. <laughs> well, uh,
4: the Germans lost most of their patents after the war, but did not lose them within Germany itself. Is no, that it?
2: Not lose them within Germany itself. Right. And so there was constant going back and forth and stuff like that and bickering. And a lot of the German companies were undercapitalized. They just, they were little companies. And the ones that made it for a long time anyway, were ones that actually got, I mean, Leica and, and, and Zeiss Econ were both able to set up companies to import in the United States. The United States was where the money was. So they were able to survive, but little companies like, like the Acarel and the Accurats, which I've been collecting recently, they were never imported officially in the United States. They had no market there. Uh, the same thing with the the, the Mat. I just got a Lortomat uh, a couple of weeks ago and a beautiful little camera, and I was interested in it because it's a little camera, very well made, but the only place they were sold in the United States was through Montgomery Ward. They never had an official import presence
0: there. Uh,
6: Nick, Nick had a question. Yeah, so I actually I'm thinking it's extremely likely that uh, another thing that hampered them was uh, if you're going to produce a, a really new design, you need new tooling, and so that means you need machine shops and people ready to produce the tooling, and not just the expense, but simply having the you know the the factory f- factories ready to go and the machine shops ready to go. Um, it's a thing that's really hampering us in this country now that we used to have this deep well of of machinists that could just make any prototype you needed. And that's hard to find now. And uh, I think they must've been in a similar situation. So it's easier to stick with an old design. You have tooling for it already. And, uh, you know.
2: Actually, actually, something like this, ICON didn't, because uh, their their major factory, all their 35-millimeter cameras that were made, like the contacts, that was bombed right into the ground. They didn't have anything left. They didn't even have prototypes, nothing.
6: Wow, so they had to start all over with the tooling as well. Yeah,
0: right. The, I believe I believe I read once that the Contessa Nettle factory was one of the ones, the one that survived the best. Stuttgart.
2: Stuttgart is one that survived, and it ended up in the Western zone. Yeah. I mean, basically that's where Zyzeekon moved to
0: was Stuttgart. Right. But all they had made was folding cameras. Folding cameras. Yeah. Well,
2: so the media products after the war uh, were the the Contessa and the uh, the uh, the, the Iconta 35 and the Cantina, which were all folding cameras uh, and designed to be priced as low as possible, simple as possible in order to sell the GIs, which they did. Uh, when they got into full metal cameras in the 1950s, along with everybody else, uh, by that time, they had the machining to, and, the, and the resources to do it. But uh,
0: Excluding Leica, if you were to survey the German camera industry about maybe 1947, 1948. It would look like East Germany was totally kicking ass, you know, uh, it, it took a little bit longer, I think for the West Germans to get going. Cause like Wes said, they could make the folders, you know, and again, excluding Leica, uh, but there were the, the other small companies like, um, he mentioned the Lord which is, you know, light off was, was in Wetzlar, you know, yeah. but they were tiny, you know, they, they, they barely made a splash. so. Uh, you know, we, we know now that it would change over, over time, but in, in, the, in the, immediate years after the war, it, the East Germans definitely had the, 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 the upper hand, it seemed.
2: They had they had exactly, which was an established <laughs> reputation and that did very, very well. And they went whole hog in the single lens reflexes at a very early stage and basically cornered the European market for single lens reflexes for many, many years. Um, and uh so uh, that gave them a lot up, but of course there was a, an increasing prejudice against these German products as one we went right on, which can actually gave, didn't help the West Germans because they weren't making single lens reflexes anyway, other than Dexter, it actually gave,
4: helped the Japanese. Instead. I can't help but wonder um, why is it that Zeiss West and even Lights didn't use the idea of the contact single lens reflexes and improve on that and make something in the West to compete with that, instead of waiting all those years to come out with that contract which was a giant of a camera, over-engineered something horribly. Yeah, Good camera, but overly engineered. But why did, why did they not take the opportunity to, to use the context base to make their own in West? They could have done that. Pride? Uh, you, know, you, know, you, know, I, I, you wonder how different things might have turned out.
3: Would that, do you think that might have meant that the Japanese industry might
4: not have taken up as quickly – might have been harder. If that was the case. Yeah. yeah. Might have been harder for them because we here in the States, uh, we were still German oriented. We were not Japanese oriented. I've talked to people who owned camera stores right after the war. Mm. And the only place that Nikon was really selling anything was on the East Coast and the West Coast. Here in the Midwest, they couldn't sell anything. The Midwestern prejudice against the Japanese was even stronger than it was on the two coasts. Mm. Uh, the Midwest was more conservative. I talked to a camera store owner here in Chicago who owned his store from like 1938 to like 1970. And you can remember when they were first coming around with the Nikon, he threw them out of the store. He didn't want anything to do with it. Didn't want to look at them. And that was going on over and over, all over the Midwest, especially. In, in 1968,
2: I was in Austin, Texas, and uh, – I had friends who were dealing with a, a camera story in Houston, Texas, who would not carry any Japanese products at all. And this was in 1968. He yeah. carried Leica and Zeiss and Alpa and Hasselblad, and yeah. yeah, but he wouldn't carry any Japanese stuff. It was you know the, the you know we don't think of the prejudice as how incredible how long it persisted among certain areas. Uh, yeah, and we
4: never forgave. We never forgave the Japanese for Pearl Harbor. We forgave the Germans for everything.
5: <laughs> can you can you comment on Dr. Nagel's factory in Stuttgart? Because he came back pretty quick after World War II. He had a
2: he had a apparently had a ten year contract with Zeiss, and which ended it ended in 1947, I think. And he basically worked in Stuttgart until then. He, he helped design. He actually designed the uh, the uh, Icon to 35. He actually designed before the Second World War and he guided into, into production and followed it with the Contina, then the Contesta were all designs that he completed. But the United States was eager to get brains out of Germany and uh, this Operation Paperclip. Anybody that historian knows about Operation yep. Paperclip where we were bringing... Yep all sorts of scientists from Germany, including Nazis who had done some very nasty experiments on prisoners and Jewish captives or whatever. They brought them in the United States because they wanted their brains. And Hubert Nirlwind was able to take advantage of that. Now, he had been basically anti-Nazi, as far as I could tell. He was not a political person at all, but he came over and Graflex just picked him up immediately and said, we want these guys they are smart, you know? And, and, you know, here's there was no money to pay somebody like Nerwin in post-war Germany. while well, as Graflex, they only give him a really good job. And then Kodak paid him even more. Uh, so it's so uh, there is, you know, why stay in Germany? Germany was in ruins.
5: Uh, but Dr. Nagel came the story. Sorry, I was told that Dr. Nagel actually had had hidden away parts for cameras. And then when, it, when war was over, he broke them out and they were able to sell cameras relatively early after the war as a result of the lenses and shutters he had tucked away.
0: Yeah. Well, well, I would I would think, you know, his relationship with Kodak helped, too. You know, I mean, first of all, Stuttgart, you know, what was right where the Retina was made, and that was a product. Even though it was German made, it was still an American company, though. So I, I could be wrong, but I didn't. Didn't Nagel die during the war, or did he? Did he make August, it out of it? Before the August Nagel died before the he was war.
4: But
0: then
2: his son carried on. Robert's talking about Nervin, Hubert Nervin.
4: Okay, he, I thought he said Nagel. I'm sorry. You know, somebody else did the same thing about bringing out hidden parts was Zap with the Minox. He had hidden a lot of parts uh, when the Russians came in and when the Nazis came back in, they traded hands a couple of times. And he was able to go into production rather quickly right after the war but all these parts that he had hidden away, which was easy to do with such a small camera. But a lot of the parts that uh, the post- early post-war Minoxes were made, but were actually made before the war. And
2: then they were sold in Germany after the war. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, you know, I remember stories about them. Oh, you want a camera? I got a camera for you. And they were yeah. selling back back then. Yeah. uh, uh there, was, there was all sorts of things like for instance the, the french were, were didn't want germany to revive at all the british were all the british were carefully packing up machinery and stuff and taking it back to britain The americans were, were the only ones that were actually friendly towards the germans uh towards getting things going because they saw that if they didn't people were going to starve to death uh you know, to get back to Nippon and Okagawa. they I mean, they had 16 factories all over the place. And, and my book talks about each one of them, what they did, what products they made and everything else in the appendices. Uh, but they, they were down to two, they had two factories plus the optical works after the war. And they had let go, thousands of employees were let go who immediately set up their own little shops making optical stuff that competed with Nikon. Uh, but they, you know, there was, there was, I think that the Japanese were better prepared, at least, well, Nippon Kagogo, I think, had a tradition of innovation. They had a tradition of doing things, and they were, their strength was the fact that they controlled everything from the glass to the end product. And a lot of these other companies, I mean, you look at something like the Nika, nice camera, well-made, uh, it still looks like a Leica, 10 years after thing, it still looks like a Barnack Leica. Well, you know, there's only so much you can do when you're doing nothing. You're dependent on other people for your optics uh, and you don't have much in the way of resources to do things. Uh, and ultimately, they, the end of the 1950s, if you look at what was happening, there's Japanese camera companies going out of business right and left all over the place uh, at the end of the 1950s. Part of it was an economic slowdown. There was a depression in Japan in, in 1959, 58, 59. But the other thing was, is simply, a lot of these companies, particularly the ones that made Leica copies, uh, nobody was buying Arnak Leicas anymore. All they were buying was M3s, M2s, and uh, the market had just died. But the other thing was, is that everybody was going to single-lens reflexes. If you had the money, you bought a single-lens reflex. The same thing was happening in Germany. You know, I. I research, researching all these German companies that made really good quality uh, cameras and they all went out of business between 1957 and 1962. They just gone. Uh, yeah. And uh, there was some consolidation. I mean uh, basically Zeiss bought and Voigländer uh, and Voigländer had all the brains but Zeiss didn't want to listen to their ideas. They had their own ideas but they were, you know, it, it's, uh, and, you know, you can look at there's economic things going on that were essentially outside the control.
4: Also, you had the, the, for some, you know, I don't know why this happened, but uh, Nippon Kagaku, for one, you know, the Nikon F, which was their first single lens reflex, which actually made them world famous and took the market by storm. That was being, I thought that was on the drawing boards at the same time as the SP, yep. identical. The SP was available in September of 57. Its actual development began in 55. Mm -hmm. So Nikon was already working on a single lens reflex in 1955. And the only reason that it didn't come out in 57 when the SP came out was because the bean counters on the first floor, the accountants, they wanted the engineers to use the same body for both cameras. But you can't do that with a reflex because the mirror mechanism had to be bigger. Okay. (sighs) So they didn't want to spend the money on a a different casting is what it boiled down to. Finally, they gave in. Fouquet and the boys, you know, convinced them they couldn't do it. And therefore, the, the F came out about 15, 16 months after the SP. But they were both on the drawing boards at the same time. So Nikon was working on a reflex as early as 1955. And you wonder why the Germans, who have always been such farsighted people and, and great engineers, but they just never saw that coming. I mean, it was, that was a, a left hook if there ever was one.
3: So I was going to say, could it be the market conditions? Because, I mean, post post the war, and I mean, that, that carried on for quite a while, there was a lot of ally influences in Germany. It wasn't just, it, but Japan was basically influenced by the way the Americans set up the market afterwards. So there was only a single, single type of argument, influence, yeah. which yeah. probably allowed for a bit more innovation in the preceding decade to lead up to that point. Is, is, that, is that a possibility?
4: That's possible. I mean, you had, you had the French, you had the British, you had the Russians all fighting over Germany. And, mm. you know, the French and the Germans have hated each other for a long time. OK, I mean, it goes way back. That's why the French didn't want the Germans to come back up, et cetera. The British were broke. They couldn't stop anyone from doing anything because they were broke. But yeah. in Japan, it was much simpler. We were the only power there that really, you know, was really doing it. The Australians were there and whatever, but the yeah. Americans were controlling everything. So it's just one I think one person the, you have to listen to. Yeah. yeah,
2: I think the other thing that you started to see earlier, one of the big culprits uh, in Germany was the, uh, the Comfort and the Frontier shutter. Um, you know, if for somebody like uh, some of these companies, he's, oh, we want to develop a single lens reflex. Well Comper says, we got a shutter that you can put behind a single lens reflex, which we were happy to sell you. But nobody was selling a focal plane shutter right. to the Germans. Right. So they are going out and you get the retina reflex, you get the Besomatic, you get the Agfa reflex, all these cameras that these guys are trying to put single lens reflexes to respond to the market shift. And but they're leaf shutter things, which means they suck, you know, because there's yeah, <laughs> you don't have an instant return mirror, you know, you have to branch them out, it's all like that. I mean, optics things. are very limited. Optics were kind of limited. Oh, you want more than 135 millimeter lens? Well, forget it.
4: <laughs> actually, I think that the, the retina had what 100, 200, they had a 200. I think retina yeah. had a 200, a, you know, there's
2: all sorts of limitations, but it was like. Oh, develop our own shutter and not run into like like a patents. How are we going to do that? Yeah. Yeah. When this company's happy to sell you a shutter that's pre-made, and the same thing is that most of these companies didn't do their own optics. I mean, the Retinas came with Schneider optics or Rodenstock, yeah. uh, and uh, so again, they were dependent on outside sources. Uh, they didn't have the the possibilities that have you.
4: So question. They had to design their cameras within the realm of what, what the optics, were optical companies were supplying, and what the shutter people were supplying. Yeah, yeah. So, uh,
2: well, while this, well, well uh, so asked the question, I think, is well, what about Canon? And there's an interesting story, which I detail in, in my book a little bit. The real game changer in the 1950s for rangefinder cameras was the Leica M3, as everybody knows. When it came out, it caught everybody flat-footed yeah uh, here all of a sudden you had you know multiple frames, parallax corrected, automatic indexing yada yada single single bus speed dial, rapid advance and stuff like that well, this was in nineteen this was introduced in the in early nineteen fifty four at the uh at the at uh, not the uh, your photo dealers show and stuff like that everybody said, Wow, this is really great, ignoring the fact that leica really didn't have a big range of lenses to go with it, but the lenses they had were all good. Well, Nikon had already been working on a camera to replace the S, and which came out as the S2 in December of 1954. In other words, seven, eight months later, they could announce a camera. Canon had been mainly, most of Canon's sales at that point were to the GIs. Their big market was the, the military exchanges. They weren't didn't have a big presence in the United States the way Nikon did. I and mean, it was, what's your concentration? Nikon said, we're going to go for the American market while, well, as Canon said, well, we're happy making lots of money off the exchanges. And, and uh, they didn't even have their own. They weren't even importing their own stuff. They were depending on a company called Scopus to import the Canons. But if you look at a Canon 5, 4, all right, good optics, Little variable viewfinders, you know, combined rangefinder, viewfinder, knob advance, knob rewind, uh, with a stupid plate on the side of the camera for a flash sync, which was really kind of stupid in retrospect. And they weren't ready with anything. They had been coasting. So they had to say, oh, my God, we've got to get together a camera. And we to match Leica. Well, what they did is they went over time. And April issue of popular photography they ran this three page two color ad about great new canon 5t that was coming out the big selling point was the trigger advance underneath and of course they had you know multiple setting viewfinder they had a pin in the in the accessory shoe that automatically keralax your finder and all sorts of goody stuff well the problem was that this was their big push, the, the, the 5T was going to be their big winner, it was going to take over the market, but they didn't probably realize that when you talk about the April issue of Modern Photography Popular, fire, that means the first of March. And in your dealer soon, they didn't have the cameras there. And you went, if you went to the store in March and said, I want to get a Canon 5T, they said, I'm sorry, we don't expect any until June or July. The thing was, the camera dealers at that point were not allowed to let these guys go out the door and come back three or four months later. They said, well, we do have these Nikon S2s here, which are every bit as good. So people were coming in to buy Canons, and they walked out with Nikons. And it was a major sales success for Nikon, although I don't think Canon saw it that way. Yeah. It was, as, as I say in the book, it was one of the greatest ads that Nikon never
5: ran. Right.
4: Another sidelight to that is, is that the original S2 prototypes, the ones that were actually assembled and worked on, had knob-wind yes. and knob-rewind, okay? Yeah. The, M, the M3 comes out, and right away they say we can't do this. So right away they went to lever-wind and lever-rewind. So they even upped the Leica by one by going with lever-rewind. So those cameras hit the market, state-of-the-art for that period. The only thing they didn't have that the Leica had was the viewfinder. They had a simpler viewfinder. But they were very usable, you know. And that rapid wine lever and that rapid we want made them fat much faster than I like. Much faster than I like.
2: Well, you know, I always question, does anybody ever seen ads in American publication for
0: the Canon Flex? I have a few in my article. Yeah, I think I've seen a few. Yeah. They do exist.
2: Yeah. Well, I went. I was going through, because I was looking at this stuff, I could not find a single ad for the Canon Flex, either popular photography, modern photography. Really? Camera. Any in 1959 or 1960. It wasn't until Bell and Hal took over the franchise that I start to see ads for it. And same time, uh Nikon Incorporated was running these full page ads about the automatic reflex starting in in June of 1959. And they were pushing it with their the 85 to 250 zoom and this stuff like that, like that. Um Canon was the. I think they were reluctantly into the SLR because they thought that their their rangefinder was going to be the big part of the business, and uh, and that was one of the areas where they really missed the boat too.
0: Well, Scopus. So I found an ad. Scopus ran ads uh, in '59 for the Canon Flex. Yeah, it's all Scopus.
2: Well, Belfort took over. The Belfort took over the.
0: Yeah. But, um, you know, a couple of things that I wanted to, to point out there, you know, in regards to what Canon was doing in the fifties, when, when, uh, Nippon Kugaku was actually making meaningful upgrades to their cameras, Canon just tended to like keep tweaking the same basic formula. I have Peter Deckert's uh, rangefinder book, Bob, you gave this to me. Yeah. Um, and I was just flipping through while you were talking and, and all the post-war so you know not including the Hansa uh from the post-war up through the the six so not including the seven there's 33 different models that Canon produced so you know where whereas Nikon I think was trying to make meaningful upgrades to to somewhat kind of compete with with Leica um Canon was just sort of like pew 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 pew, pew you know just you want <laughs> 500
2: thousands of seconds with, yeah. without sync you know there are all sorts of little variations in the same thing
4: yeah, you know, I, I knew Peter Deckard personally, and he was a very very educated man. He had a PhD, as a matter of fact. And unfortunately, his book reads like a thesis sometimes. If you if you read it, I've read that book maybe six times. Okay, and to this day, I still can't keep the models straight in my head. Hard because you know, they, they, they do them. They do them out of sequence. They like made a new model for every market they could find. You know, if yeah. somebody had a market for a thousand cameras, they'd make a model. But the thing is, they kept renaming things. Okay, right. Whereas with Nikon, what they would do. You know, the S was, was really the one and the M. Okay, the one and the M became the S. They're all the same basic camera, but it's constantly improving, okay? But the thing is, they're not changing or calling it a new model, okay? It's still an M or an S or whatever. The S2, the same way. The S2 went through a couple of changes, a lot of modifications. They never changed the name of it. They just kept S2. They didn't call it S2B, S2C, or whatever, thing like that. So right. Nikon's was much simpler. There was constant improvement. Well, even
0: even the SP started with a cloth shutter,
4: right? Cloth shutters at first, and they went to titanium shutters, right? Right. The S2 started with um, the chrome dials. The chrome dial, the black dials. And they went to the black dial version, which is more visible, okay? But they also changed the the, the shutter change when they went to the black dial, because the black dial shutters are much more like the SP shutter, because you could motorize an S2. You could not motorize an early S2. You only could motorize a black dial, okay? They did actually change the shutter. They were upgrading the shutter, and then they, since they were working on the SP, they used some of the input from that to make the new S2 shutter. But they didn't call it a new model, okay? They didn't even call the S2E a new model, really. That's what we call it, the S2E. But the thing oh, is, um, Canon none, just
2: – None of the ads refer to Nikon Model 1 or, or – No, Nikon no. It was and, just
4: called the Nikon. It was called the Nikon. When yeah.
2: the S2 came out, then they started referring to the
4: S. Yes, or model. the 1. Some, some people call it the S1 – Zeiss
2: said a similar thing. When the Zeiss came out with the, the Contacts 1, they had a new version of the Contacts 1 about every six months. They went yeah. with seven, eight different variations in the Contacts 1. And, and the public was just, I mean, you could walk in the store and the next week there'd be a new version. And when, when Nerwin actually took over to the design department and they he helped design the, the, the Contacts 2 and the, and the Contacts 3, he said, this is the exterior appearance of this camera. This appearance will not change from here on out. We can make changes inside, but the public will not. Except see those that. those little bumps
0: on the front yeah, of it, the, the, front <laughs> <bumps on>
2: the <laughs> shoes and everything else. Yeah, there's all sorts of things that you know, and the and you know the thing is yeah you know, when you want to buy something you want to get the latest version and if yeah. stores got an older version people don't want to buy it so the stores would be stuck with with older outdated versions that they couldn't sell because there's a new version out well when when you came out with the Context too it always looked the same so they could easily sell whatever they had in stock
4: like it was like i actually did that a little bit too i mean before the war their model designations got a little confusing They had multiple models in production at the same time. Uh, they were constantly upgrading and, and giving new model names to them and whatever, to the point, And they were called one thing in Europe and something else in the United States. So it gets a little confusing sometimes.
0: So one thing I wanted to, to, to point out, a question that was asked in a previous podcast, I don't remember which one it was, was why was the Nikon F so successful? Like, what, what was it about that camera that the other Japanese companies couldn't do? And w- without either Wes or Robert on that call, I attempted to answer it, is that they listened to the professionals. Um, I I'm sure Robert or Wes, you can explain that in in better detail than I did, but you know, it it was truly that Nippon Kungaku wanted to make the best camera they could. And they listened to the pros and said, what do you want? Right.
4: Yep. Well, one thing that they did right from the very beginning, like I said, the SP and the F were on the drawing boards at the same time. All they had to do was stretch that F body a half of an inch. That casting had to be a half inch longer. And you had your F okay. All the running gear is the same. The Nikon F and the SP shared about 75% of the parts in both cameras. They're identical. The whole shutter mechanism was identical. So the F was really not a new camera. It was actually a proven camera. Uh, Then what they did was they addressed the major problems at that time for single lens reflexes was instant return mirror and auto diaphragm. They conquered that. And then when that camera hit the market, it had both. And both of them worked. Even with a motor, you had a mirror and an auto diaphragm that worked up to three frames a second. Nobody else had that.
2: Another fact to consider, when the Nikon F came out, it had a range of optics from 21 millimeter to 1,000 millimeter. That's right. A 35, a 50, and a 105, and 135 millimeter automatic lenses on the day of introduction. The Canon Flex, on the other hand, which should have been the major competition, had a normal lens. And then a hundred millimeter lens. And that was it. They had no automatic wide angles. No wide or, angles, yeah, at all. Or anything like that. And you know, eventually they got well the time they started to catch up, Nikon already had a 28 wide angle automatic. They had their 85 to 250 zoom, they had their, you know, and they and they just kept the two hundred F4. Yeah, uh, right. And they the 58 F14, they you know, they 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 never stopped. I mean they knew that the old professionals. Wanted automatic lenses that, that would automatically reopen and shut down and were easy to do it. And you look at the mechanism, the Canon Flex had two prongs in the back of the lens, one which would arm the diaphragm and the other that would release the diaphragm. And it was just, you know, and if you didn't get the two little levers just
0: right, you'd screw it up and you have to go back there and fudge with it. If you mount, if you cut, ca- this is funny. Anthony, you have my Canon Flex. So you can try this. If you cock the lens or cock the shutter on a Canon flex, then take the lens off, then fire the shutter, then mount it back on the diaphragm won't work correctly. Right. And that's those two pens he's talking about. And so Anthony has my Canon flex right now. And just the other day, he's like, what's the deal with these two aperture rings? <laughs> you know, and, and I said, well, it's kind of like uh, a preset lens, but the exact opposite. <laughs> right. Is, is that what I told you, Anthony?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm used to working with Exactas, and uh, it was like just so backwards. I just could not figure out why this was not working for me.
4: Yeah, another thing about the Canon optics, even into the FD series, you had to be very careful if you ever set a Canon optic down. You take it off the camera. If you set it down base first, it never would. It would always be tilted or whatever because things were sticking out. Okay, you could damage it. And if you didn't do things in the right sequence when you went to mount it, you, you couldn't get it to mount.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. I wanted to, before we, you know, do a thing, I wanted to share a couple of things here with you
5: guys.
0: I wanted to share this little beauty with you. Yeah, Bellows. So he sh- he's holding up a Bellows attachment.
5: Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. This is like like the model one Bellows, okay? They made
0: about
2: 220 of them, as far as I can tell from the serial numbers. Uh, this is number two. The interesting thing about this thing is is it's the only
0: one that anybody has ever
2: seen that has a tripod socket on the front. That's thing. weird. Oh
0: wow. Maybe they anticipated a really really heavy lens. <laughs>
4: Either that or they had maybe a, a slide copier of some type or something in in they were on the front. one, you
2: know, It's the standard one here and the one here. Uh this is number 2. Um and um I've never seen I've seen number 10 and it does not have it. So it's uh, something that it was did not persist. And I picked this up uh, about 2003 or 2004 for $87 off of eBay. So you know, it is like that. That's
0: I've cool. got another one. So
3: I've, got, I've got one now. I have to go look at it.
0: Just in case. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see Paul is fiddling with something. So I'm wondering where he's about to pop up there.
2: Uh,
0: I, have an, I, I think I
2: have a, a Bellows one in my store right now.
0: I've
2: got a question that's slightly
3: tangent to the discussion today. Um, we've got Ray, Robert Shanebrook here as well. What, is there a documented history of collaboration work in those early stages between? You know, obviously we know camera companies work with fil- worked with film companies quite extensively, you know, in the latter part of the last century. But in in that particular stage, were is there any documented history of, for instance, Nikon working with Kodak uh, or anything like that?
5: I don't. I... <coughs> The film world and the camera world were fairly separated during my time. I did a lot of work with Hasselblad, but that was because I was interested in 120. But I, I think the film world and the camera world were more separated than you might think.
3: That the, That's kind of why I'm asking the question, because it's never come up in terms of any collaboration work or any. Yeah,
0: any I can't think of anything. I've never heard the anything, ever.
5: no. Yeah, the, the, the film people were interested in, the the physical requirements for perforations in advance and that sort of thing. But really didn't have any interest in what the optics were or other things that happened. They were just interested in the mechanical interface so that the film would transport through cameras well. As far as the design of cameras, I don't think there was much interface. Surprisingly, within the Kodak organization, the film people and the camera people were were quite separate and that few people migrated between the two organizations i had worked in the apparatus division research laboratory and when i joined the film world it was i i I actually was treated as though i was a new employee that i had no relationship (laughs) whatsoever (laughs) with the camera i came in the front door of kodak park as though I was a new hire, at, but I had worked for the company for five years prior to that. I was kind of offended by that, I might, I might add. I, I, I felt I was being treated as somebody that had no relationship with the company whatsoever when I arrived on scene. Yeah.
2: Um, one, uh, one, the one one the one factor in, in the post-war Japan, and, and Bob, you probably know about this too, is that the uh, prior to, uh, other than a couple of very small companies, most of the Japanese cameras that were produced were uh, in the semi format, which was two and a quarter by uh, one and five eighths. Uh, And um, there was a rumor that went around about 1947 or so that due to the shortage of film, there was an enormous shortage of film. They were taking, saying we need film for x-rays because tuberculosis was such a major problem in Japan. And therefore we might ban uh, all film larger than 35 millimeter. All of a sudden, you know, there was a big panic because these cameras that were making you know, 120 film, all of a sudden they had to get into 35 millimeter because they thought they wouldn't be able to sell otherwise. Now the they never did ban uh the 120 size, the two and a quarter size. They never did, but the threat of it is one of the reasons like a company like Minolta uh quickly went to 35 millimeter
4: and uh, oh. instead of sticking with uh with just um, yeah, they had they had a tremendous problem right after the war. A lot of the troops that were coming back from those tropical islands were coming back with all types of lung disease, fungus, etc., and tuberculosis. Plus, yeah. they had that huge famine in Japan and starvation after the war. A lot of people didn't have anywhere to live. They were living outside. They were coming down with tuberculosis. They were using all that film to take uh, X-rays of their of their lungs. They wouldn't allow anybody to make uh, film. It was just very hard to get. The government was controlling it. Yeah.
0: So we haven't heard anything from Miles or Mark. Do you guys have any questions that you want to ask? I have a question. I think that
1: falls in line with the, the CineLens story you told about kind of saving Nikon early on. Uh, I have the the Nikon 5-centimeter F1.5. I actually bought from you, Robert, a while ago. I don't know if you remember. I think uh, so.
4: I think I remember it.
1: Yeah. And I know I've read a couple of articles. This from- Is this Miles yeah.
4: Liebeck? Is this Miles Liebeck? Oh, yeah. I remember now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. uh and i've read i don't think either of you wrote the articles but david douglas duncan kind of made that lens i don't know yes. famous i guess um and people talk about uh him kind of saving nikon in the american market and i, I was wondering how accurate or hypocritical that story is in his kind of by using those he, he started
4: a tsunami effect is what he did um of course, the, the book This Is War, he even says in the back that he used like a cameras, of course, but every lens that he used was a nightcore, okay? And when he left for, for Korea, which is right after the, like the day after it started, he had a 135 F4, he had a 51.5, and I think he might have had the 35, okay? And he upgraded his time when He went to the 135 eventually, and he went to the 51-4 eventually. But um, he was very happy with the results. And as a matter of fact, he would, when he would send his film, he'd send raw film back to New York. And they would do the processing back in New York. And, and the lab people were saying, well, man, what are you using? This stuff is really sharp, you know? And this just started the ball rolling. And then Jacob Descheny heard about it, and one thing led to another. It's just like the media today, I mean, okay? Same thing. But, um, yeah, he had a lot to do with it. And because he was such a great promoter, I mean, David Douglas was not only a photographer, he was a fantastic promoter, okay? He not only promoted himself, but he promoted the Nikon. And one thing led to another. And, you know, most most amateurs like to emulate the pros, okay? In other words, if, if you go to a, a football game and you see 50 pros on the sideline and all using Nikon, you say to yourself, well, that's got to be the only one that's any good. And people would go out and buy Nikons. Okay? One reason why Nikons are so good in the United States because the pros just use them here and uh, they took off from there. But, yeah, it um, – he had a lot to do with it. I mean, he may not have saved the company, but I'm sure he gave it a different light. In other words, people looked at it differently after he used it. People say, well, you know, maybe he knows something that we don't know, okay? And then he started to test the lenses in New York, you know, and whatever, and they were coming out. They, matter of fact, they made a, a terrible error, they, not an error, but they they said in one of the articles that all the Nikhors were better than the German Zeiss optics. And the guy from Zeiss just went through the roof. OK, I mean, it was just Absolutely. they had to apologize. He's going to pull all the ads out of the paper and they had to apologize to him and all this kind of stuff because it started a real a real uproar. But they were, they were very sensitive about that.
2: Duncan really liked the the 50 F1.5 and all the pictures he took in Korea were taken with that lens. In fact, if you will pick up the book, This is War, every single picture in that book, with one exception, is taken with the 50 and the exception is the picture of the North North Korean soldier or the, the red Chinese soldier that was taken with the 135. Um, the interesting thing is, is that in um, uh, July 51, uh, they nicely provided him with the 51.4. Well, there are two things here. All the pictures he took were taken at F-11, which was the smallest aperture on that oh, list. Yeah. So <laughs> here's a 1.5 lens of fastest Japanese lens at that time, and he's got it all the way shut, all the way down as far as he could go. But they gave him a 50 f1.4. He didn't like it as well. He complained that it wasn't as good uh, as, and of course, I think what happened was Nikon was, they were stretching, they were trying to stretch the formulas, so and they could boast that they had the fastest lens of anybody. And they they actually went through, and this is something that Nikon doesn't openly admit, they actually tweaked the formula of the 50F1-4 at least three or four times. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that you see, the serial number ranges change. and Well, that's because they are, they are changing the formula. And one of the things they did on the second version, the first version actually gave no more light than a 1.5. It wasn't even though it was theoretically 1.4. It really wasn't any faster than 1.5. And one of the things they did on the second version is they enlarged the front element to give it better light gathering capability. So it could actually say it was a 1.4. And, but I have a letter that the, quoting Duncan is basically saying, you know, I don't like this new lens. I like the old one better and, you know, and so forth. So. There's, actually,
4: there's actually an ad, Wes, I have it somewhere, when the 1.4 was just announced to the public. There's an actual ad in one of the magazines that says, the first lens faster at 1.5. Yep. Okay. So, I mean, what's the difference between 1.5 and 1.4? Is negligible, but that's how they advertised it when it first came out.
0: My favorite um, David Douglas Sunken story that Robert told me, and I've shared on my site before, uh, was how he discovered, you know, the, the Lenses was a young Japanese photographer named June Mickey,
5: yeah, who... No,
0: Duncan and some other Life Magazine photographers are based out of Tokyo, and they're working in their lab or dark room or whatever. And this young kid just kind of walking around, and he, it, it's like you know ambient light in a in a studio or something. And he starts snapping pictures of Duncan, and Duncan like isn't paying much attention to him. Like you know what are you doing? It's there's no light in here. Like why are you wasting your your time? So the kid doesn't say anything. He goes home, develops a film, prints, what was an eight by 10? Yep. Something like that. Yeah. He prints an eight by 10 of Duncan sitting at his desk, looking down at something. And all he's got is a desk lamp on and he hands him the picture. And -hmm. Duncan like vaguely remembers the previous day, this kid's walking around with a camera and it was a, Leica, snapping pictures of him. He's like, what the hell? What like, it blew his yeah. mind. You know, he knew he took the picture. He's like, there's no way that picture is going to come out that now he's looking at this, this exposed eight by 10 of himself. And he's like, what? How, like, let me see that camera. So he shows on the camera. It was just what like a Leica three or something. But it, it was a Nikkor lens on it.
4: 85 and, F2. Yeah. 85 F2.
0: So you know that that's kind of how how David Duncan David D- David Douglas Duncan uh, discovered. He's like, well, show me where this was made, yeah.
4: you know. And then that and then the rest of the story is they took a is cab. But the thing is, June Mickey was the first um, Japanese Life magazine staffer. He was actually yeah on the staff. But then when after they saw the pictures, he and Horace Bristol and June Mickey they hopped in a cab and they went over to Ohio, which is Senegal. It wasn't that far away, and uh, they went in there, and of course. In those days, you could do that. They took them through the whole factory, and they gave them a whole set of lenses and all this kind of stuff. They were trying so hard to impress the Americans, but yeah, that's how it happened. That's how it happened. The and coach. they tried to go to Canon first, but Canon was too busy to see them. Remember that, Wes? Oh, Canon said we don't
2: have time to see you. Yeah, we don't have time to see you today.
4: Well, screw you. Well, and that <laughs> and that, that one
0: circles the biggest
4: back. Biggest mistakes in marketing ever made.
0: Well, that circles back to what I said was that you know from the very beginning, Nippon Kugaku was listening.
4: Yeah, yep. didn't Knowing you? Doctor Doctor Nagoka, n- Dr. who was the president of of Nippon Kanagaku at that time, spoke perfect English. Okay, he was he was, a, he was a, a doctor. I can't remember chemistry was, or something he, like that. He was exactly. a very educated man, but he also spoke perfect English, which meant that there was no problem with communication. Either actually, also he was the one who was able to communicate with. Uh, MacArthur and, and the guys to get things through uh, all the problems they were having. But because he could speak perfect English and read it and write it, there was no no language barrier. I don't know if Canon had anybody that was that proficient at English or not.
0: Didn't you tell me that Nippon Kugaku would take in any cameras or lenses from any foreign photographer in Tokyo and service yeah. it for free? During
4: the Korean War, they were for, they, they were actually, I think our, if I remember right, if I read it right, our government actually hired them to maintain photographic equipment that was being you know korea was a rough rough theater of war okay it was cold hot whatever and um uh, nippon was chosen to to be one of the bases to to they, they cycle used equipment or, or abused equipment into tokyo and nikon would fix them and send them no matter what it was they would fix them and send them back
0: so, so you know you yeah, figure they, you figure they're, they're providing the service for free but yeah. hey while i have you you know yeah. they're, they're listening <laughs> And I think yeah. that that kind of keeps that that's a recurring thing. You keep hearing that they were listening and that's how they knew what to do with the, the F, you know, yeah. and and, you know, they made the F and they basically had to shut down their range
4: finder line. I mean, they, I had know, they, to. they ran out of space. they ran yeah. out of room. In other words, I've been to the factory. It's been destroyed now. They knocked it down a couple of years ago. But I was in Ohio like three times, I think. And it's not that big. Okay, it's not that yeah. big a building. Uh, the first floor was where the where the the castings were made and the lathe shops were. The second floor was assembly. The third floor was also assembly. But the thing is, we only had like I think four thousand people working there. Yeah. And the thing is, is that the s the range finders moved at a certain rate. I mean, they they were selling. Okay, the f comes along, and it just blows everything out of the water. I Aaron mean, Reich is just screaming for for product. Okay. And he was He's, the guy they had to listen to. Joseph
0: Ehrenreich was the Joe U.S. Ehrenreich,
4: importer yeah. for. Okay. And he was he was just he was just screaming for it. And so they had to literally take the rangefinder line and shut it down for a while because they needed production capacity, which they couldn't do with the, with just the two lines running. They had to shut it down. It became all F for like. Six or eight months. And eventually they did make a couple more runs of rangefinder. Some late SPs were made like in 63 and 64, but that was like an afterthought. They just used up existing parts. But they were forced out of the rangefinder business simply because of demand and yeah. common sense economics, forced them out. They didn't want to quit. They already had a they already had the SPX. I've held in my hand. It was a working camera with behind the lens meter. Um, they had the SP2 they had, they had with, with a built-in uh Zoom viewfinder and things like this. They had stuff on the board. They had stuff already made, completely finished, working. Um, Three cameras. They would have followed up the SP, never got made because they just got forced out of the market.
0: Yeah. And it's, and, and, you know, just to emphasize what Robert said, you know, Nippon Kugaku was small. Like Canon was much larger. Oh, much larger. I read a statistic that the Canon 7 the the one of the later rangefinders yeah. there were more canon 7s made than
4: all nikon rangefinders c- combined well there was at least 100,000 okay yeah. and if you take if you take all the rangefinder nikons and do some math because there's holes in the, in the numbers they're not all consecutive you come up with about 135,000 cameras over about an 11 or 12 year period of time that's not a lot really canon made something like 800,000 Rangefinder cameras.
0: Well, so according, according to Peter Decker, there were 137,000 Canon
4: 7s. Yeah. so 135,000 Nikon. so there were more so Canon it, 7s. Were, right. So, I mean, just to go... And it made like, like 230,000 Leica M3s. So the yeah. Leica M3 exceeded the entire production of Nikon yeah. rangefinders. Just, the yeah. entire thing.
3: It's, do you think the, the fact that the, the F was so popular not only sort of Killed off the rangefinder for them, but also probably blocked Nikon from considering moving into medium format or other type of formats.
4: They had a medium format prototype, which actually has been on display in Tokyo in, at their museum. I, have a, I have a picture lens. of it, I may say. Yeah, they, have an intercha- they had an interchangeable lens, two and a quarter reflex. They had like three lenses already designed for it, and everything. It was, it's, it's a working model. So they were thinking about, it. of course, when they were designing the Nikon 1, they had the TLR on the boards at the same time as they were doing the TL, the Nikon 1. They were going to come out with both of them. And it was copied after the Roloflex. But the problem they ran into was is they had to buy the shutter because they did not have the capability to make a, a leaf shutter. And there was no good source of a leaf shutter in Japan at that time, so they dropped the whole project. But they had, they actually made some. We don't know what happened to them. No one's they ever made, actually they seen They made a 16-millimeter a camera, too. They made a 16-millimeter also, which – I've got pictures of that was being um, examined by someone in New York. Uh, Someone in Aaron Reich at New York had it. I don't know if it was Abbott or not, but in other words, he had it in his hands and he rejected it. Okay. And the thing is when my first visit to the factory in 87, the gentleman that was uh, sitting there with us from the, from the company who was with us, I had my book with me. And I showed it to him and he looked at that and he left the room. He came back and he said he couldn't find it, but he was on the development crew for the 16 millimeter. And that's the first time he'd ever seen the pictures that I had. <laughs> so they made, I think he said they, now they had the 16 also on display at the, at the Nikon museum in Shinagawa within the last year. So the 16 does exist at least in one, one example, the two and yeah. a quarter existed at least in one example.
0: I have pictures of all of them in my Nikon yeah.
6: prototypes article. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I mean, they, they wanted to make more stuff. They just, they, they were kind of, they were hampered by their own success.
6: They, they also made a lot of great uh, medium format lenses in like oh, yeah, 19, for Bronica. early Ronica, 60s, Veronica. Yeah. yeah. And those are some, I have a couple of them. They're really amazing yeah, lenses. Yeah. I used to have
4: at one the time, I had a, a with about six of their lenses. Fantastic.
6: So, wrote, so, of course, the Canon made a two and a quarter camera also. So, so I do want to throw one other thing into this question about why the Japanese just dove into single lens reflex with so much enthusiasm. And I don't know a lot about it, but I do know that in the beginning of the 20th century, Japan was already just deeply in love with photography as an art form. And there was a lot of passion. And I think a lot of guys who who ran and worked in those Japanese companies were actually really interested in photography as an art form. And there is something about single lens reflex cameras that is, this is a very direct, there's a very strong directness about it. It's, the experience of using them is not technical the way it is with a rangefinder, where you have to imagine the focal length you're looking at, and you're you know, sort of you're sort of set back. And that's the thing I like about rangefinders, but it, they kind of put the camera between you and the experience. And the thing about a single lens reflex is it really plunges you directly into the image. And I think that might have had something to do with it. There is a conservatism and a, te- and a sort of technocratic side to the German culture that. Um, the Japanese I don't think cared about that they, they wanted the camera to get out of the way and be maybe complex on the inside but the experience you had using it should be very direct and simple and, and a lot of people caught on to that once they made it available um,
4: you, know, you know Nick If, yeah. if the thing with, with a single lens reflex is, is you're looking at, at the screen and you're looking at a two, two dimensional image of what you're mm-hmm. going to get Okay, so when, you, when the print finally comes back you're going to see the same thing that you saw on the screen there's yep. no deviation from that. Okay. Yeah. And it's just it's just a, a more comfortable way to take pictures. There's less to worry about. If you can shoot very quickly, frame and fire very quickly. And um with a range fighter, sometimes you can't do that. Range fighters have their own purpose, of course. Yeah. But they were existed because they had to. There was no, there was no, no alternative to them for for many many years. Well, there were, the there were. there were, came along.
6: There were graphlex single lens reflex yeah. cameras going back a hundred years, but they had yeah. a lot of limitations. Oh and, yeah, and exact
4: yeah. it was, you know, had had its own limitations. Exact right. was a little yeah. different, but it was, you know, it was a good camera. It just had its own limitation. So one, one more question I want to ask, and then I'll shut up.
0: Um, you know, we talked about June Mickey. We talked about David Douglas Duncan, Joe Ehrenreich. All these guys played a role in the ultimate evolution of Nippon Kugaku and eventually the Japanese camera industry. We knew Canon was already there. They had been making cameras since the thirties. Uh, Minolta, a lot of these companies existed before the war, but if, nippon kugaku did not exist they just weren't part of the table when when macarthur went to japan he just poof, shut them down who would have been the next one who i mean i i, I can't imagine that japan pentax yeah i can't imagine that nobody would have risen to the top but who, Canada, who do you guys
4: Canada think? would, have, pr- would, Canada have, would Canada. have risen to the top they were the closest they they probably would minota would have been probably number two a strong number two okay But Canon, I think, would eventually have risen to the top because they were making a more or less professional camera, okay? Uh, However, their problem was that when you take the Hansa Canon, Nippon made the lens, Nippon made the focusing mount, and Nippon made all of the optics in the rangefinder. They had no ability to make any of that, okay? They didn't make their own shutter, and they made their own shell, etc., Nikon would, did all the optics, all the glass that's in that camera, plus that very complicated focusing mount, which is actually the same focusing mount you find on their own cameras. It just looks different. It was all made by Nippon and Kugaku. And so without Nikon, I don't know if Canon would have gotten off the ground. They would have had to have come up with somebody else to buy their optics from, which could have happened. But um, their camera was, was leaps ahead of like Minota and places like that. They were more amateur cameras. So I think Canon probably would have won.
2: You know, it's, it's hard to you know looking back on this thing is that at uh, immediately after the Second World War, Nippon Kagugu, uh was responsible for over eighty percent of all the optical production in Japan. I mean, you know, he was it was a hundred pound gorilla, two uh, hundred pound gorilla, and you know, Fuji and uh, uh, even their closest rival uh, uh, Tokyo Kogaku was you know most, like five percent or whatever. Yeah. They there was no contest, and so and and the entire industry looked to Dean Conrad to go for leadership. They said, you know, what do you want us to do? How are you going to help us and stuff like that? And you can say, well, yeah, they were they, after the war when they cut their employees by ninety percent and cut their factories by down to only a couple of buildings. They are much smaller, but they still, you know, they they were the giant. Canon was a bigger camera manufacturer but they were not a a big optical manufacturer, and it's a big difference here. I I think that Canon took a path in which they were making cameras right and left and having a hell of a good time selling cameras, but uh, they really didn't get very innovative until they were forced to do so. Uh, They had innovations, their Canon was, their camera was different, but uh, it wasn't until they were basically Told to get you know get up or get out, while as Nikon was always looking to do be different. I mean, everybody else went with a Leica thread. They are the only 35 millimeter
0: camera that used the contacts mount. So I mean, you know, this showed that they were willing to take risks. Um, that's and that's hard, I think, for some people to understand today because consumerism—you know—you everybody just fights one another. Everybody wants to get a leg up. Nobody—you don't hear too much about technology sharing. I mean, it does happen, but not to the degree it did back back then. Like like you guys both said, Canon may not have gotten off the ground if it hadn't been for Nippon Kogaku. You know, they made lenses for their competitors. I mean, they actively helped their competition, and that's was sort of the the culture back then. And I think over time that started to kind of go away you know but like if if you're a young person just getting into photography today or even within the last 20 years you know it, it's not unreasonable for you to see Canon and Nikon as like bitter rivals when in reality yeah. you go back far enough and I mean they they act they helped each other out and and that role that Nikon played both in the discovery of of uh, or I should not discovery but in in releasing their lenses and just everything they did um, is tremendous, and that's why you know, circling back to something I said earlier, just that story is just so fascinating to me.
6: It was very similar in pre-war Germany as well. They that the camera companies were almost this yeah. big, fluid, amorphous. They, you know, no ownerships would change, but the same factories cranked along.
0: You know? when, uh, when, when Zeiss Icon was formed in 1926, you know, it was by, by decree of the German government that they needed to kind of combine. But one of the stipulations was that every each of the four companies that went in to form Zeiss Icon, uh, they were not allowed to discontinue any products being made at the time from those four companies. So in 1926, if you were to look at a Zeiss icon, 1926 catalog, it's very large, um, yeah. you know, cause all those factories that were, were, you know, Ernemann, Gore's Ica and, um, Contessa. Contessa. Yeah. Contessa Nettle. Um, that's, that's Nagel's one. Um, all their models just continued. And, you know, in the, in the years after that they whittled it down, but some of those models, you know, the box 10 Gore was a Gore's design. Uh, you know, there were others that continued to be made, but, you know, th- there was, there was, yeah you know, there was a similar level of cooperation, I think in Germany too, but you know, that all changed after the war.
1: Well, I have a question and this may be out of bounds and maybe it's, it's but with, with so much knowledge of the history, you know, we talked earlier about how, you know, Mike brought up the question about Nikon succeeding because they listened. And then over the history of the last 40 years, you've got this constant going back and forth between Canon and Nikon, Canon and Nikon advancing, challenging each other, falling back. Does Nikon have a future? I mean, that's the question I have would be uh, can they recapture what they had in the 50s and 60s? Are they at a moment right now? Where they can put it together again and and stay viable as a company.
2: I think that you're you uh, you have to understand that that for Nikon the photography business is about thirty percent of what they make. So they are not that's they, they're all their eggs are not in one basket. And you could argue that Canon, of course, makes photocopiers and printers and 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 stuff like that. So they aren't entirely dependent on photography either. Although I think it's a much larger part of their product. Uh, so I think that Nikon has, has depth of resources that, uh, I don't think Canon makes stepper lenses and steppers, uh, which are a critical part of the computer industry. So, you know, you see the things that are going on, you can see the, you know, the, the cameras, Nikon cameras make all the publicity. That's what everybody talks about, but it's just one product out of hundreds.
0: Yeah. Well, it wasn't, didn't Pentax recently or, or Rico now, but. Isn't Pentax officially done? Or, no, Olympus. Olympus did that, right? Yeah, yeah they might they do medical equipment or something now. They, they <laughs> saved
4: the medical equipment and sold the photographic.
0: But Olympus just within the last year or two just decided yeah. we are done. Whether you know, I think Anthony, you were asking, you know, in the photographic world. Uh, I think the answer to that question largely depends on whether cameras survive.
5: You know? well, that's the thing.
4: The it world has like- changed so much with cameras. It, now. And I don't you mean know. and I don't mean these. You know, I mean no, well. The thing we is, is that you
5: know what? your
4: point-and-shoot you cameras are gone. Period. Yeah. They don't exist anymore. Whether they were film or digital, they're just not around anymore. We sold like I think Japan sold what two or three million cameras last year, but they we sold worldwide 80 million camera phones. Okay. Probably more than that if I had
0: more than
5: that. So the thing okay. is, is that my question.
0: You know, the is,
4: amateurs have uh, always been happy with lesser quality. That's why they've always shot print film instead of slide. But the thing is nowadays they're all happy with this little tiny screen and they don't print more than 10% of the pictures they ever shoot. Okay. And they've all got these cameras on, in their phone. That's all they carry. They go, on vac- they go to Europe on a vacation with a camera phone. You know, that's it. My question is, why is it that these guys who make
2: phones don't advertise the optics they use in their cameras? I don't pick up, for instance, an iPhone and have it, say, up to that next little tiny lens there, say Nikkor on it.
4: Yeah. Why suckers. the hell
2: not? Somebody's making those
0: suckers. And well, somebody's
4: got to be making them, yeah. No,
0: there there are Hasselblad-branded smartphones. Uh, there's Leica ones now, too, yeah. right? How they are, are, they are think... doing that. Yeah, yeah. But
4: they're probably all made in China.
0: There was even—didn't somebody share that there's a they're re, they're bringing back the Tessar? This it's a six-element Tessar lens. A six <laughs> element? That's not it's, a Tessar. No, I know, but it's just a name now. It's like Yashica is is a is a trademark that somebody owns. Polaroid is just a name. It's it's Boy not
4: are the same thing. Boy
0: yeah. They, I mean, they are doing what you're saying, Wes, but not for the right reasons.
6: But also, there are very few people who even know what these names right, mean they don't. anymore. I mean, Tess, right? You know, nope. You you ask you ask a hundred out of a hundred
0: high schoolers or even college students what does Tessar mean, and they're not going to know.
6: Yeah.
0: And even if one of them does say, "Oh, isn't that a lens?" They're not going to know it's a four element. You know, double. Uh, you know, whatever. I mean, they're just not going to understand. Three component four element. Yeah. Yeah, I think
2: they're they're more interested in the megapixels. So if the camera says it's got you know mm. 58
5: megapixels, it's like oh, I've got to have that one. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the latest it's, it's... Bla- the latest blasphemy is that Kodak now sells, and I hesitate to say this, Kodachrome ink.
0: Seriously, so <laughs> part
5: of oh, I part of the commercial <laughs> inkjet basis, which. Riles the hell out of me. But.
1: I've not seen that yet. Oh,
6: You're so, it's a, so it's a black ink that you have to spill dye on later.
0: Yeah, it's got red jet. No, <laughs> you have, you <laughs> have, have to they, take it out and put it in sunlight before your picture will appear. Yeah. I, have a, I have a question here. Has anybody been having trouble getting film? Yes, yeah, yes, it is out of stock everywhere,
5: especially Inter- color.
3: Interesting enough, considering I'm on a very, <laughs> let's say, interesting part of the world. We're not much consumer. I've actually not had that much trouble.
6: Yeah, it's I just to, um, just go downstairs to open my freezer door, and uh, and there it is.
5: Yeah, the the issue is not sent in Codex point of view. The issue is not sensitizing. The issue is finishing that yeah. they f- they foolishly got rid of a lot of the spooling equipment. Yeah. It used to have literally hundreds of spoolers, and now they're down to a very small number. So that's the pinch point on capacity. I did listen to the latest earnings report from Kodak, and the president mentioned that they're increasing their film capacity. I, I contacted them and asked what that meant, and they said they were that they were making no further comment, but I, I know what it is, and they're trying to increase their finishing capacity, but. It's it's a difficult thing to do. My guess is they'll take an old spooler and get it running again. Robert
6: hey, James, I'll, I'll I'll spool my own, no problem. <laughs> Robert, I know somebody
1: who's working with, with Ilford on a project as well, and they're having a horrible time getting the finishing done. It's the same bottleneck.
0: Robert, since since we spoke, um Fuji made the announcement that they haven't abandoned film. They just they use the term mothballed it. That was something that they used. So do you, do you think that that's something they could feasibly ramp up production again? or?
4: Well, if they have the equipment and the, and the, the chemicals, they could do it, I would imagine. I mean, it's, once you've made something, you don't completely forget about how to make it. It's just that if you get rid of your equipment or if you get rid of the people who made it, then you have a problem. It's just like the problem Nikon ran into when they made those uh, Millennium cameras, the S3 and the SP. They reissued around 2000. They found out that there was nobody in the factory at that time that knew how to make them, how to put them together. So they went out and they found a bunch of retired guys in their seventies and eighties. Gosh! They brought them in and they trained twenty people how to assemble an SP and an S3. And those cameras were actually made in one room with twenty people. Wow! Okay. <laughs> oh, that's it. And a lot of the parts were farmed out. They couldn't even make all the parts. Yeah. Okay, but they had actually trained twenty younger people. Were being trained by eighty-year-old men. <laughs> how to put together a Nikon SP and an S3 because nobody had the, the capability of doing it. Nobody in the, wow. in, in the company at that time had ever done wow. it. They didn't know. It was all being, you know, everything by then. Cameras weren't touched by humans until you put them in the box. You know? Right. So, so they, that's had to a, hire, actually, they had to train 20 people to put those two cameras together.
3: That's a really interesting point about the parts, though, because going back to Anthony's question on their future, they probably need – if they're going to be keeping in the camera industry they probably need to come back to maybe some of the ownership of some of the parts because i do i mean if you look at historically recently they've used sony sensors for instance i mean that that yeah. might be something they they need to sort of bring back in house and innovate otherwise they're always going to play second fiddle
0: well yeah. you know guys i, I got to be that uh, that time again but um we could go on and on and on the 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 oh, level yeah. of of knowledge, just sitting here in this room, we're going to definitely have to do a part two and maybe a part three. Uh, Robert Shanebrook. I want to get you back on to the feedback we got from episode eight uh, was, was fantastic. It's funny. You had mentioned um, Steve Sasson with his digital camera. And recently I uh, ran into a guy who actually met Steve Sasson, inspected that digital camera and made a perfect replica of it. It doesn't yeah. work, but he showed me a picture of that camera side by side, uh, and it looks exactly the same. So um, there's just so many things I want to talk about, so many questions. I mean, just, just there's got to be stories about those Millennium Edition Nikon cameras, too, uh, that are worth mentioning. Uh, but I want to give everybody here one more chance to ask a question or, or, or share something before we, we, we go.
5: I, I just want to thank uh, Wes for his book. I read it many years ago. And uh, I learned so much from reading his book. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, I'm just kind of in awe of the amount of knowledge I've heard from y'all this evening. And also, like, I love this Nikon S2 that I got from from Bob as
4: well. So I remember that. I so, yeah, so,
0: so who there's nine people left? Paul had to drop off. Um, how many people on this podcast have something in their possession that was once owned by Robert? <laughs> I do, <laughs> looks like Miles, Mark. I'm sure Wes has something. <laughs> I don't have to get something, Sanathos, or yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't yeah. Think. <laughs> we'll have to wait for the next time Paul ships something to Theo and package something up in
4: there. But yeah, that's it. The, the knowledge here is just amazing. Yeah. I have one um, thing to say about Wes's book, okay. Um, you'll notice that I did the, the forward for it and whatever, because Wes asked me to, but I also saw a pre, pre-printed, uh, pre-printing uh, mock-up of it. And I, if you read the forward, I mentioned that with all the research that I've, I've been doing, this is 73. Okay. I had never, ever thought that our national archives would have anything on that period of time. So Wes found a way to, to tap into something that I didn't even know existed. And therefore, when I read his book, Cover the Cover, which I read like four or five times now, I learned something every time because I did not have any of that knowledge. I had different sources. I went about it a totally different way. So he really did a lot for us to get some factual information as opposed to hearsay and word of mouth and stories, etc. Cetera, et cetera. He's actually got it on black and white. And I, like I say, that was one heck of an idea. I never would have thought. Our archives wouldn't even have anything. So thank you, Wes. Thank you. Yeah, th- yeah thanks, Wes. Um, Anthony, Theo, Nick.
6: All I have to contribute is this.
0: <laughs> He's firing an icon F. I love that sound.
6: Yeah. Oh, this was uh, great. Thank you.
0: All right, guys. Thanks for everything. It's been absolutely fantastic. Okay. Um, Got
4: to do it again.
0: We will definitely do this again. I don't know when Uh, another idea that we have is we want to actually do an episode. We don't know when we're going to do it, but at a different time zone to maybe allow some of our European listeners to come in. Um, It it might not be until after the new year. I don't know when, but uh, we're always looking for new ideas. Uh, We sometimes hear uh, um, suggestions. Why don't you guys do a Pentax episode? Why don't you talk more about a Soviet cameras? Well, you guys, control uh what we talk about so the more people who want to join uh we'll try and get special guests when we can but uh um we we love feedback that's the whole point of this podcast is it's everybody's to to participate and join in and uh and and that we could have the episode you want to talk about just join uh so once again thanks you guys and uh, have a happy thanksgiving for those of you in the u.s okay take care thank you guys
1: Bye
4: thank home. you guys
1: yeah, thank you everybody
4: What kind of wood grows in Japan, what, what kind of that trees do they that. have?